This is Ari Koretsky and welcome to Jews You Should Know. Introducing the broader community to interesting and inspiring Jewish men and women making a difference in our world. Some are already famous, some not yet so. But each is a Jew you should know. We are here with Daniel Geffen, serial entrepreneur, podcaster, outsourcing master. How are you, Daniel? Good, good. How are you, Ari? Doing wonderful, wonderful. Thank you for joining us. I understand you're coming to us from the land of Israel. Is that correct? I am, yes. Yes, privileged. Privileged to be here. I'm jealous. And uh, that being said, judging by your accent, it does not sound like you are a native of Jerusalem. I'm originally from Nigeria. <laughs> I can sense that Nigerian accent there. Um, it comes through, the accent. I, I've been working on it so long. Okay, I, I guess, you know, there's, there's some British humor for you guys. There you go. But in all seriousness, which part of London are you from? <laughs> so originally, I'm from a little shtetl called Stanford Hill, for those of you that know it. And for those of you that don't, don't worry about it. Stanford Hill is a neighborhood within London? It is, yeah. It's like a Mayor Sharem type of neighborhood um, in London. That's where I grew up. Wonderful. What was that upbringing like? Where did you go to school? school I hated school. I really did. I, to me, school was like a jail sentence. Like seriously, it was, you know, sit down in this chair and listen to things you don't want to listen to by people you don't care about for eight hours a day, whatever it was. That was it. It was a jail sentence. And when I came out, I was free. I was a free man. I did my time and, uh, and that was it. That's how I literally felt. Um, and I would do whatever I could to entertain myself. So whether it was jumping on tables, making paper airplanes, all sorts of shenanigans. And of course, I became the class clown and everybody was laughing and I would get detention, get into trouble. And it was all fun and games until I realized one day that actually people were not laughing with me. They were laughing at me. And that was a quite a depressing time in my life kind of blurred out most of my <laughs> most of my school years because of that. I had a big mole on my face with hair growing out of it. So people called me spider face. I had really bad sticking out teeth. They called me Bugs Bunny. Um, I was kept down a year because they didn't have room in the year above and I wasn't exactly a, you know, behaving myself. So they kept me down. And so they called me dumb and stupid. And I was, uh, I was really badly emotionally abused and bullied. But actually not just by the students, but also by, you know, a lot of the teachers as well. And so I had a very low self-esteem, like zero confidence in myself. And that's my childhood <laughs> memory of, of, of school. Wow. Did you, did you ever uh, confide in your parents or family? Was there anyone there to support? Uh, my parents, so that was an interesting dynamic in itself. Uh, my father's a son of a Holocaust survivor who didn't really know how to express himself emotionally. Uh, his mother drowned in a lake when he was only 13 years old and they didn't tell him until he came to the funeral and he didn't know whose funeral he was going to. And then they said, it's your mother. Okay. And actually on the flight, because he was in Gateshead in, in boarding school and on the way to the funeral, they didn't tell him anything. So he just thought he was going on a trip to Israel. He was so happy. And he was writing, he wrote a postcard to his mother on the flight saying, hi, Ima, I'm so excited. I'm going to Israel on a trip. I miss you. I love you. Um, he actually found that postcard recently. He had a really tough life, my dad. My, my father had a very, it, was, it wasn't easy. So I grew up with a father who was scarred emotionally. And my mother had her share as well from her background. And so it was tough. 
if you ask me what I did most of my childhood, it was I went to my best friend. His name was Yakov Kanter, if he's listening to this. And I sat in his bedroom playing video games pretty much, just escaping. My, that was my childhood. Well, very, uh, very challenging, obviously. Character forming, I'm sure. Uh, it sounds like. Yeah. How, how did you ultimately um, cope with that? And perhaps that's part of the story of your, uh, your renaissance mm-hmm. as an adult. Where did you go physically, I guess, after high school, after primary school? And how did you start to develop yourself or heal yourself as a young adult? So good question. I, I mean, I went to yeshiva after I actually worked in a home for mentally handicapped first. So I dropped out of high school. It was actually, I remember it was, um, <laughs> it was Purim. And I remember very clearly saying to my friend, I'm not going back to school. And he said, what do you mean you're not going back? So I said, I, I don't know. I just don't feel like going back. And, and that was it. I never went back. I just didn't show up. And I took a job in a home for mentally handicapped and I ended up working with them. And that was very rewarding. It was, it was a, it was, a huge eye-opener for me. And then I met a guy who was one of the carers who came back from a trip to Israel. He went on a, one of these trips that they do. He wasn't religious at all. And when he came back from the trip, he had extended his stay and went to a yeshiva there. And when he came back, he was literally high as a kite naturally. Uh, he's just, he was like, so, and I was at a point in my life where I was kind of just plodding along, you know, kind of feeling a bit confused about life itself and everything else. And, and I'm like, why are you so happy? Why, why are you so, what? he had such a joy, you know, he had, it was incredible. And, and he said to me, well, I went to Israel and I went to yeshiva. Now for me, the word yeshiva was like, uh, really? You had a good time going to yeshiva? To me, yeshiva was like, that's high school extended. Why would you want to do more jail time, right? Like sit down and learn more and, and like, come on, what's wrong with you? But he basically persuaded me by, by just telling me, no, it's not what you think. You know, it's different. And it was amazing. And I got to discover myself. And he, he like really, he said all the right words. Obviously, it was divine providence that he was there at that point in my life. And, and you know, interestingly enough, Ari, I really believe that Hashem, God has sent me the right people at the right time in my life. At every stage that I've been at, whether it was going bankrupt, whether it was having a six-figure salary, and we'll talk about that, and you know, building my business and almost losing my whole business. I had a mentor called Gavin, just everything. My wife came into my life at the right time. There's so many different mentors that have just come in and people who have come in at the right time and, and they've been literally like messengers just, just helping me at that precise moment and that stage in my life. And at that point, it was this guy and he persuaded me and I went and I said, okay, great, I'm going to go. And I was only going to go for two weeks and that lasted five years. Was that your first time in Israel? First time that I can remember, meaning that I, I, I went, my parents took me when I was a child, but I didn't have memories from it. But that was the first time that I went on my own. And like I said, you know, two weeks uh, extended to five years. I became a rabbi and ended up going to, well, first I actually met my wife, which was an interesting story. So my wife was visiting and we went out and we went out about five times, but then she needed to go back to, to California. No, she's California. She's an LA girl. She was way out of my league. Like I thought there's no way she's going to go for me. She's too cool. She's too, you know, she's American. Oh my God, you know. And I just, I didn't think there was a chance, right? <laughs> but one thing about me is even though I didn't have a lot of self-esteem, 
I was always very persistent. I was very, very stubborn and very persistent. Every single point in my life, my persistency has taken me just that much further, just a little bit further. So what happened was, is I just didn't take no for an answer. Like she said, oh, I've got to go fly back to California. And I'm like, okay, great. I'll come. She's like, what? (laughs) (laughs) I'll get on a plane. She gets on the plane. You're you're sitting next to her, you know? (laughs) Well, it wasn't exactly like that. I I had to book a ticket and I had to, you know, but so about three weeks after she went, I, I booked the ticket and I jumped on a plane. I remember actually someone telling me, it was actually a rabbi in the yeshiva who said, Daniel, you shouldn't do it. You shouldn't go. And I said, why not? And he said, because you're going to get crushed. You know, this girl is, she's obviously clearly not sure what she wants. She's gone back there. You're going to fly halfway around the world to a place you've never been to in your life. You don't know anybody there. What are you going to do there? Like, this doesn't make sense. This is a bad plan. And I said, I hear you, but I'm going anyway. And by the way, we could talk about that as well. The idea of I hear you, but I'm doing it anyway. And mm. I learned to treat my thoughts and feelings like that because thoughts and feelings, a lot of times they, can, they try to control you. And so when you say the words, I hear you, but I'm going to do it anyway, it's like, yeah, I hear what you're saying loud and clear, but let's, we're going anyway. And so I got on a, a plane and, and I flew there and I ended up crashing at people's houses, like literally just, just crashed at people's houses. And I continued dating uh, this girl. And it went really well. Like it was really good. I was charming her and doing all the right things. And after a while, I said to her, I said, Lauren, what's holding you back? What's holding you back? And she said to me, I don't know what it is. I really don't. I think you're an amazing guy. I really do. I think you're awesome. And I'm like, okay, great. So then what could it be? And she, she didn't know. And I, and I pushed, I kind of said, well, can you try to give me something? Give me anything. Just tell me anything. She's like, okay, I know what it is, but it's going to sound crazy. I said, okay, I do crazy. Let's do crazy. Tell me what is it? She said, you're too nice. I said, what? What do you mean I'm too nice? She said, you're too. You're just too nice. You're too good. So I went back to. I, I by the way, I was staying in like three different houses at the time. So I went back to whoever it was I was staying at, and I and I sat on my bed and I really thought it through. I'm too nice. Like, how can that make any sense, right? And then it hit me over the weekend, over Shabbos, I, I thought about it and I realized I knew what I needed to do. So she calls me up, Motzeh Shabbos, and she says, hey, how was it? How was, how was Shabbos? I said, oh, it was great. How was yours? She said, yeah, it was good. I hung out with some friends. I said, listen, I need to tell you something. She said, yeah. I said, I don't think this is going to work out. She said, what? What do you mean you don't think this is going to work out? I said, well, you know, I just feel like it's not going anywhere. And the more I go out with you, the more, you know, I have more feelings for you. And I, I don't want to get hurt. So I just feel like it's best if we part ways. I'll go back to Israel and you'll date other people. I'll date other people. And let's call it a day. But it was really nice to meet you. Now, as I'm saying this, my heart is beating like a, a, a rocket ship right? It's like coming out of my chest. But I knew I needed to do that because I needed to use the reverse psychology yeah. and it worked. It really worked. So she said, no, 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 let's go out one more time and let's see, let's just see what happens. So I said, okay, great. So I said, but on one condition, we have to play a game. It's called spin the bottle. And she's, a relig- she's religious, right? And she's like, spin the bottle? I mean, what do you mean spin the bottle? We can't, you know, like, that, that's not a game for, I said, no, 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 we don't do any kissing or anything. It's just, we spin the bottle and Whoever it points to has to answer a question. And what we do is we're going to write down a list of very deep questions. We're going to put it in a hat and we're going to play spin the bottle. And whoever gets 
the bottle has to answer the question. She's like, oh, wow, I love that idea. So we went, and uh, on that date, we went to the beach, and we sat down, and we played spin the bottle. And by the end of all the questions, and we wrote down really deep questions like, what's your life purpose? And, you know, what would you want people to say at your, at your funeral? Like, really, like, what would you want your children to grow up like? And at the end, she asks, like, you know, the last question. Then she looks up and she said, I'm ready. Wow. Unbelievable. And that was kind of the story. So that's kind of how I, I tricked my wife into marrying me, which I wrote about in my book, The Self-Help Addict. I'm um, curious, Daniel, you know, what, what did you see in her that made you want to be so persistent to travel across the world to pursue her. I just knew. I just knew that she was the one. When you know something, you know it. There's no needing to figure it out or think about it. There's nothing necessarily logical about it. It just is. It's the right thing. And when you know something's right, you've got to go for it. You really do. There's so many times where, my, where I didn't listen to my gut and I regret it. My gut feeling is usually always right. There's different voices that you have in your head. I have a lot of voices in my head. Usually the ones that I don't listen to are the ones that are really loud and really annoying. And they go, Carl, you're a loser. You can't do this. There's no way you're going to accomplish that. There's no way. There's no chances. They're usually very loud and, and they sound almost desperate. The voice that's calm and quiet but confident, that's your gut feeling. That's your, the most inner part of who you are. And he's, he's always right. Reminds me of the, the small, still voice that we talk about in the Bible. You know, that yep. voice of God coming in that sort of calm and understated but real way. I'm curious, Daniel, <laughs> along this path, were you doing any emotional healing from the childhood trauma, from the challenges face, or was it just a, a question of growing into yourself? It was really growing into myself, but also reading a lot. And a lot of it was, was really proving to myself that I can do it. So I would take a lot of action. Even though I didn't feel like doing it, even though I was scared, I would do a lot. So, so today, people say to me, wow, Daniel, you know, you're a host of a, an award-winning show. You're a number one best-selling author. You know, you've built two successful companies from scratch. You know, all of these things that I've achieved in my life. And they're like, you know, how did you do it? Like, how are you? And the answer to the question is, anyone can do it. The difference between the people who don't do it and the people who do is the people who do it, they take action even though they feel or hear the thoughts in their head. You know, I have a chapter in my book that says, if you take the action, the feelings will follow. So I still get thoughts all the time that says, you know, oh, don't go to the gym. Like, oh, I can't even bother going to the gym, right? And it used to be that you know, people say you should ignore those thoughts or you should crush your fears. I don't like that. I don't like to crush the fears and I don't like to ignore my thoughts because they're in a way very much a part of me. So I started looking at them like little children. So for example, I have four children. They're all under the age of 10. And when it comes to bedtime, it's always the same thing. I don't want to go to bed. I don't feel like going to bed. I don't want to brush my teeth. I don't feel like brushing my teeth. Right? It's always the same. Now, as a father, I can either stand there and argue with them but then I'm lowering myself to their level and I'm not a kid. I'm not one of them. I'm the man. I'm the father. I know what's best. So what do I do? I take them by the hand and I take them upstairs and I say, I know you don't feel like going to bed, but you're going to bed. Good night. I love you. Right? I know you don't want to brush your teeth, but hey, your teeth are going to fall out. So I love you and I want you to brush your teeth. I don't want you to lose your teeth. So you're going to do it anyway. And so that's what I do with my thoughts and feelings. When I wake up in the morning, my thoughts and feelings say, I don't want to get up. I don't want to go to the gym. 
I don't want to go to Darwin. I don't want to pray. And I say, I know you feel like that. And I know you think that, but we're going anyway. And what happens is I get into the car and I go and I get to the gym, right? And I start running. And five minutes later, all of a sudden those voices, wow, this is amazing. This feels great. I'm so happy we came here. Oh my goodness. Right. And I'm, and I say, well, look, I told you so. And so every single time that I take action, my thoughts and feelings change their mind. So I've learned to realize that even though they might say something, they'll change. It's just temporary. So for example, for 10 years, I wanted to write this book. 10 years, 10 years, I wanted to write this book, The Self-Help Addict. And my thoughts and feelings kept saying to me, you're never going to write the book. You can't write the book. It's impossible. And you're never going to get it printed. No one's going to want to read it. No one's going to buy it. They're going to think you're stupid. What are you doing? Now, I could have stayed in the argument and just kept arguing with them and arguing with them. But instead, you know what I did? I just wrote it. I wrote it. I printed it, sold it, became a number one international bestseller. And now, do you know what I say to my thoughts? Now what? What argument do you have now? I relate very much to that sentiment overall. And in a meta sense, uh, with respect to this very podcast, you know, I had the dream for a couple of years. I, I had the name, I had the concept, I had everything mapped out. And I got one or two rejections from guests early on. And uh, ah, forget it, nobody's going to do it. And then I was interviewed myself on a podcast by a guy named Jacob Rupp. And after the podcast, I told him, you know, I have this goal of doing this podcast, but I just, it's not going to work out. He said, just do it. Just jump in and do it. And within a week, I had literally lined up 10, 15 interviews, internationally renowned experts and uh, personalities. And it was just a question of just doing it. And now looking back, it's amazing. You know, what was I thinking not to do it for those years? Yeah. So, so it's interesting because everything seems like a big deal until you do it. And then it's not a big deal anymore. Powerful advice. So let's fast forward a little bit, Daniel. You're in California. Sounds like, I guess Lauren said yes. Uh, you yeah. got married. Did you get married in California? And did you stay there? What, what did you do next? We got married in Israel. We lived in Israel for nine months. Then I, I felt the, the, the itchy, you know, that, that need to get out and do and, and produce. And so I went and I got a, a job as a rabbi you know, on a campus, USC. Doing outreach, yeah. California outreach, right? Go Trojans. Yeah, go Trojans. And then the 2008 came along and uh, all of a sudden, you know, I was out of a job and everything sort of kind of fell down. Like I had this Russian landlady knocking on my door one day telling me that I need to leave. And I had my first child at the time. And I said, what do you mean I need to leave? I have a, I have a wife. I have a child. Like, what does that mean? She said, well, you haven't paid the rent in three months. You've got to get out. We, you know, that's it. Time's up. So I moved in with my in-laws and that was terrible because uh, we were going to get divorced after three weeks. And it actually, it was, it was a really, really low point in my life where I, I kind of just, I gave up and I, I left the house. Like I got embarrassed because I was sitting there playing video games and my wife would be like, what are you doing? And then I could see my parents-in-law were, were really disappointed and I just felt so low. And I walked out and I'm, I'm ashamed to say it, but I walked out on my family and I went away for about a week. I stayed at a friend's and thankfully my friend just persuaded me to go back. He's like, you're going to lose your wife and child. That's everything. You're going to lose everything. And so I went back and I begged my wife to, to basically move with me to London. And I called up my father and asked him for a job. And it was the last thing I wanted to do because working for my father, it's just, you know, who wants to, you know, uh, so I went. What did, what did he do? 
Well, he has a grocery store, so you know, I would sit there and serve milk and eggs to people. You know, it was. I went from this cure of rabbi, having you know a great time, living the high life. I was on a six-figure salary. I was driving a brand new car, living in a Spanish townhouse. It was amazing. It was such a. And then suddenly, now I'm in England, where I grew up, and working in my father's grocery store, which is where I worked when I was like ten. <laughs> you know, I just felt like I took such a a big you know sort of step back. And after a year, I said to my wife, I said, I can't do this anymore. Like I'm, I'm, I feel like, you know, that feeling of, of what I described as being in jail in school, that's how I felt working for my father in the shop. I felt like I was back in jail. And in a way, if you, if you listen, I'm listening to myself repeat my story. And as I'm listening to myself, I, I can see a theme. There's a common thread. And that is that there's this person in me that needs to express himself. There's just this need to just have the freedom to express and to do what I what I want to do. And when I'm when that is squandered, when I feel like I'm locked up, when I can't express myself, when I can't be who I want to be, it's really it's like being in jail. I feel like a slave. And there's so many people that you know might be listening to this right now can relate to that, where they feel like they're a slave. I used to be a slave to the people who bullied me. I used to be a slave to to my thoughts and feelings. I used to be a slave to to the situations and circumstances that happened in my life, and I broke free. I was a slave to the self help addict. I wrote the book, The Self Help Addict, because I was addicted to self help. I was constantly looking for that shiny object, that secret, that one thing, that one book that would change my life, that one video that would inspire me forever. No, it doesn't exist. And so for me. Freedom is being able to do what you want to do, even though people might tell you no, even though your voice in your head might say no, but you say yes, I'm going to do it. So you were back in London, and and you told your wife it's time to do something different. What did mm-hmm. you do? So I started my my first company. Um, it was a call center and a virtual office company, and I was literally the receptionist. I was the sales guy, the manager, the CEO, the CFO, right? The debt collector, everything. How did you, all... you come up with this idea? So actually I had a bazillion ideas because as an entrepreneur, naturally we get ideas all the time, right? At the worst possible moments when we're in the shower, we can't write it down, where we're <laughs> in the middle of our sleep, we wake up at two in the morning, we're like, oh my goodness, I had such a great idea, but I'm too tired to go back to sleep. Right, and we have all of these ideas. And the thing is, what 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 fascinates me is when people say, "Oh my goodness, you know, Airbnb, I had that idea. Oh, you know, yeah, Uber, oh, I had that idea. Like, yeah, great, but ideas are worthless. It's all about execution. It's all about execution, and that's another common theme in my book. Right, the whole thing about the self help addict is we all have these great ideas. We've all got this inspiration. We've we've got. An abundance of inspiration and motivation, but we're not going anywhere with it because we don't execute. We don't channel that energy into action. And if you don't channel the energy into action, it's kind of like someone who eats a lot. Food is energy. If you eat and eat and eat and eat and eat, and you don't convert that energy into anything, you get fat. You get fat, overweight. You die young. You have all these diseases and illnesses. Right? A self-help addict is overweight in his brain. We get obese. In our head, we consume and consume and consume and consume. We take in more information, more information, more information, more. Let me listen to another podcast show. Let me read another book. Let me watch another webinar. Let me do that. 
and you keep packing it in and you just don't convert that into anything. You don't produce anything. How many videos did you produce yourself? How many podcast shows did you record? How many, how many Facebook lives have you done? How many books have you written? Most self-help addicts will say none, but you've consumed all of this. So you've got all this information just sitting there. And that's why you wonder why you're overwhelmed. There's too much information. Especially in our digital age, you know, with so much available on demand. Yes. And you know what? It's a blessing and a curse. It's a double-edged sword. Yes, we have more resources. Yes, we have more information. You can go on YouTube right now and learn anything. You can even build a rocket ship on YouTube. I'm not kidding. I actually interviewed someone on my show who built her house from YouTube. She went on YouTube and she literally built her house from tutorials on YouTube. Man. No joke. <laughs> no joke. So I, I had all these ideas, but I didn't really know what to do. So I went to see a business mentor, a Jewish guy by the name of Shruga Zaltzman in London. And there was an organization called Work Avenue where they help Jewish business uh, minds and, and entrepreneurs to, they support them and help them to start a business. So I went there and I gave them some of the ideas and they didn't like many of them, but one of them, they, they, they really they thought it was a good idea, which was this idea of a virtual office and virtual receptionist. So I started the company and like I said, I was everything. And again, I found myself in jail because I was doing all the things I didn't like to do, except I was doing more of it and for longer. Because when you own your own business, usually your business owns you at the beginning, right? And so, you know, I hate chasing money. I hate having to, you know, hire people and fire people. I don't like it. I really don't. I don't like screaming at a 60-year-old woman and making her cry. I, and, and that really happened. I didn't like, I hated it. Uh, I didn't like a lot of the just day-to-day -day dealing with, with all sorts of putting out fires. And so the company was, it was growing, but it was growing very slowly because I was spending more time in the business rather than on the business. And then something happened that completely changed everything. I had this head receptionist, um, I guess I can call her my chief of operations, right? She ran everything. And it was amazing because she knew what she was doing and she loved what she was doing. And I was able to just go in and pretty much work on building more relationships, building the, the business up and, and not dealing with all the clients and dealing with all everything else. But one day she calls me up and she says, Daniel, um, I'm really sorry to do this, but I can't come into work. And I said, oh, are you okay? Do you have the flu? Are you coming in next week? And she said, no, I, um, I almost committed suicide. And I went to my therapist and they told me I can't work for six months. I'm really sorry. So I just was completely shocked. I mean, this is someone who she looked so happy. Everything seemed so like amazing. And she was running my company. And now all of a sudden, the person that was running my company isn't available. And I had no idea I forgot even how to run the company because I'd given her everything. She had created all these processes and every, everything. And so I, there I am stuck with all this stuff and all these clients. I had a couple of hundred clients and I didn't know what, what was flying. And the same day, I kid you not, the same day, I get a call from the office that I was renting and they said, we're selling the building and you need to leave. You've got two weeks. So all that pressure suddenly mounted on me and I went home and I <laughs> went into my bedroom like a little boy, sat on my bed and put my head between my knees and kind of just broke down. Like I thought, that's it. I've, I worked so hard to build this company up and I'm about to lose everything. And I called up my business mentor at the time 
And he listened to me for about 20 minutes, just giving him all of these different, and this happened and that happened. I can't believe it. I'm losing everything. I can't, you know, just completely negative. And then he said to me, Daniel, are you done? And I said, yeah. He said, okay, get up off your sorry, self-pitying backside, okay, and go and do something about it. Stop sitting here feeling sorry for yourself. Stop moping. Go out, get creative. That's what you're good at. That's your genius. That's what you're great at, is figuring a way out of things. Go figure a way out of this. And he hung up the phone on me. I felt like <laughs> someone slapped me across the face. Like literally, just someone just went, Whoosh. and the truth is, that's exactly what I needed. Do you see, I thought I needed a sympathy. Like, I needed sympathy. I needed a sympathetic ear. I didn't. I didn't need a sympathetic ear. What I needed was someone to punch me in the face and say, Daniel, wake up. You're, you're going to lose your company. Go do something about it, right? And so I went for a walk. And I started thinking of creative ways around this. And I came to the real issue. The real issue was that I'm the type of person, I'm very creative, and I can build a company pretty quickly, and I know how to connect with people, and I could see the strengths in others. And there's so many, and I started listing in my head all of my strengths. And on the other side, I started thinking of all of my weaknesses. So and I actually took out a piece of paper and I wrote, I drew a line down the middle. And on the left-hand side, I wrote things I love and things I'm great at. And I started writing them all down. And on the right hand and the other side of the, of the line, I wrote things I hate slash things I'm not good at. And I wrote them all down. And what I realized is that I need to outsource my company. That is the quickest and easiest way to deal with this issue right now is to outsource everything that I don't like. Everything I hate and everything I'm not good at, I'm just going to outsource it. And that's exactly what I did. And so I outsourced my company to one of my competitors and I kept the brand. I kept all the clients. I have control over all the clients till today. And I outsourced the whole thing. And so what I did was I went, fired all my staff, got rid of my office, went to a local hotel, sat in the hotel lobby with a laptop and a phone and scaled my company. Like literally built it and grew it. And it was incredible, the growth that it had. And, and I did that for a year. Every single day, I went back to this hotel, sat in the lobby, walked up and down. People thought I was the manager of the hotel. They would tell me, <laughs> hey, can I take a lunch break? And I said, you could take a lunch break whenever you want, but it's not up to me. I'm not the manager. Oh, you're not the manager? No. Oh, do you work here? Well, kind of, but not for the hotel. You know, it's like really funny. Until, until one day, the manager, the real manager of the hotel came and he's like, excuse me, sir, can I have a word with you? I said, sure. And I knew, I knew this was it. This was the day. He says, what? Like, do, um, and he was like stumbling over his way. He didn't know how to say it, what to say, because he didn't want to offend. You know, he wasn't sure. He, he said, do, do, do you live in this hotel? <laughs> I said, live in the hotel? No, no, I don't live in the, No, I have a wife and kids. I have a house. Like, you know, he's like, no, because I see you here every day. You're here from the morning to leave every day. I come in, you're here. And I said to him, yeah. He says, well, I don't understand. Like, what, what are you doing here? I said, well, I'm running my business from here. I'm running my company. And he almost looked like someone like smacked him in the face. He was shocked. He was, do you mind maybe running your company somewhere else? I'm like, sure, thank you very much. And I walked out and that was the end of that. But this was like five years ago now. And you know, the company still runs on its own completely. It completely so, runs wait, on its own. When you say you outsourced it, that means that you find the clients, but then you give them over to a competitor, literally. And I don't give them over to a competitor. What happens is, is I, I did a deal with a competitor who already had the whole infrastructure. Right. He had all the staff and everything in place. And all I did was I said to them, look, 
I have all of these clients. I have hundreds of clients. Um, you service them under my name, right? So you have to answer all the calls as my company. Everything has to be under my brand name. Right. And you treat them like they're your clients, but they're my clients. And I pay you um, an amount. And I negotiated, obviously, a good deal, which worked for me so I can make a very good margin. And that was it. It was really that simple. Um, you sacrificed the percentage in order to have them handle everything. Uh, yes, but actually, interestingly enough, I think my profits were way, way, way higher when I outsourced it than when I had, you know, uh, staff in house because I could scale much faster when I don't have to deal with the hiring, the firing, and all the other things. And yeah, I mean, that's and now in my my new company in 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 my Geffen Media Group, which is my latest company, instead of outsourcing to a competitor, what I've done is I I have a COO that I hired who runs the operations and. I try to outsource again. I try to outsource as much tasks as I can rather than hiring people in-house and having to to manage them and micromanage and deal with all the sick days and lunch breaks and sitting on Facebook and wasting time. Now I just pay companies or I pay people and I pay them for the work that they do. It's a whole different business model and and I, I don't know if it will necessarily work for everyone. I think it could work for a lot of people, but, and some people might, you know, might not like that business model, but it's worked for me. It means that I could do the things I love. I basically semi-retired when I was 31 and I moved to Israel with my three children and my wife and play tennis and you know, just pretty much enjoyed a little vacation for about six months. And then I got bored as we entrepreneurs do, we get very bored. You know, it's interesting, the word entrepreneur, I think it's overused and abused. People, people say entrepreneur, entrepreneur, entrepreneur. And everyone tries to give a dis- different definition for what entrepreneur means. But I think I've got it down to, you know you're an entrepreneur if you can check two boxes. Okay, these are the two boxes. Box number one is you cannot work for anyone else. Not that you don't want to, but you cannot it's like being in jail. You just feel, oh, I can't do this, right? You know, some people say, you know, I've got a job and I would love to start my own business. Okay, hold on one second. You would love to start your Do you like your job? Not really. Okay, but you don't feel like you can't work for them? No, I'm fine. I can't. Okay, so do yourself a favor. Like, don't rock the boat, right? It's not easy to start your own business. I could promise you that. So if you want to, if you're an entrepreneur, it's these two boxes. One is you cannot work for anyone else. And two is you can't stop working. You, you, you can't stop creating and thinking and, and just coming up with new ideas. It's just, it's part of you. You go on vacation, your wife's like, Hey, can we, yeah, yeah. And as you're like going, you know, you're still thinking of that new idea. Oh, did I do that? Like, Oh, you know, and all these different creations, like you cannot, you sit on, you sit there, you know, with your feet up and, but you, it doesn't last very long because you, you just go, you need to go, you need to create. For me, those are the two boxes that I know that you're an entrepreneur if you tick those boxes. And so for me, I couldn't sit still. And that's when I started my own podcast show. So someone invited me onto their podcast. I loved it, right? And I said, how do you do this? And so he's like, well, I'll show you what you need to do. And within two weeks, I had my own show. This was three years ago. And I actually remember the first ever episode, I recorded it 17 times because every time I was like, oh no, I, I messed up, I messed up. And like 17 times I had to just re-record, re-record and finally I got it out. And since then I've interviewed billionaires, celebrities, thought leaders, you know, 
best-selling authors. I've interviewed the smartest man alive. I've interviewed the leading hostage negotiator for the FBI. Just some crazy, crazy stories. I was rated the top 26 podcasts in the business category on iTunes in 2017. It's just been, it's been incredible. Unbelievable. But it just, yeah, it just started with me needing to just go and create. What's the goal of your podcast? And what's it called? It's called, Can I Pick Your Brain? Can I pick your brain? And the goal is really to, to interview people and to find out how they got to where they are. So I basically just pick their brain. You know when you see someone that you really look up to, you admire, and you, you just want to pick their brain, you just want to have that five minutes. You might see them at like a dinner or, or you know, they're walking in the street. You just want to go, hey, can I pick, can I pick your brain for a minute? Like I just want to... And so, so that's why I called it Can I Pick Your Brain? Because I'm just literally picking their brain. I'm just diving into their brain and saying, what did you do? To well, get I, I learned from a very wise uh, guest on my show that you can't just collect all that information. You have to then go and produce with it. Um, <laughs> very good. So what have, you, what have you utilized that information for? How have you translated all that you've been learning from these incredible people into your life or into other ventures? It's a good question. So number one is I built myself a network of people who I keep in touch with and it's incredibly powerful. I mean, Pretty much almost any industry, if anybody needs like assistance from somebody who's an expert in pretty much any industry, I've got them in an email. I've got them on Facebook. I, I can reach out to them anytime I want. So that's huge. That's very powerful. Uh, for my book, I actually included a, a lot of the guests that I've had on my show. I've included their stories in the book and they really helped me to get to number one bestseller because they promoted it to their audience. It was, it was wild. I had this 24-hour period on Amazon where I had 24 hours to get to number one. And I was just literally like my audience and the guests that I had, they were all just supporting me. And rate, like, it, was like, it was like I was running a marathon and I was at that last mile and I just felt like I couldn't go any further. And everybody that I've built a relationship with over these years just literally with their words, with their encouragement, with their commenting and sharing and shouting and going, yeah, you can do it. And I just like, they just got me to the, to the finish line. It's, wow. it's amazing. When, yeah. when did you write your book? You've been self-help addict uh, several times already. Is that, is mm -hmm. that the, the only book you've written? And um, yes. what, what's it about? The self-help addict. So I, I had the idea about 10 years ago. Interestingly enough, I remember I was in a therapist chair and the therapist said to me, Daniel, what are you trying to achieve that you want to do, but you haven't done it yet? And I said, well, I actually have this idea to write this book called The Self-Help Addict. And she said, oh, it sounds like a great title. Well, you know, why don't you write it? And I said, because I am the self-help addict. I am the self-help addict, right? I need to read the book in order to write the book. You know? And it was, it was very interesting. And that's exactly what, in a way, that's what I did is as I wrote the book, I was really writing it for myself. Everything I talk about in the book is all really just me talking to myself. And what's the and central thesis? Thesis is as follows. So I'll paint you a little picture, an example. Um, and for those of you listening to this, you'll either nod your heads going, oh, yeah, 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 that makes so much sense, or, or you won't. Um, and, and those that do nod their heads, you know, then you're pretty much a self-help addict. So I'm in uh, California, and I'm standing outside the big, one of the biggest bookstores called Barnes and Nobles. I don't know if you remember Barnes and Nobles before Amazon, right? Before Amazon became the giant bookseller, Barnes and Nobles was, I think, the biggest in California. And so I'm standing there, I'm about to go in, and my, my wife, she grabs me by my, by my sleeve and she says, 
you are not going in there. And I said, what? Why? Why not? She said, because every time you go in there, you just get lost in there, right? You, you're in there for hours. I can't get you out. And so, of course, I know she's right, right? And I said to her, listen, honey, please, like, maybe go buy yourself something nice, like take the kids out for ice cream. You know, I'll see you in an hour, you know? And so being a good wife, she says, all right, fine, I'll give you an hour. And she goes, I walk in. And I head straight for the self-help section, you know, the self-development or business section, right? And I'm in heaven. Like, I'm literally in this, like, space of just, ah. And I can see the new, I'm looking for the new releases. Like, what's new? What's fresh? What came, what came out, you know? And I start grabbing at books. Like, I start looking at the titles and the back cover. And I start flicking through. And I look at the contents of testimonials, right? Who is the author? And I'm, what I'm really doing is I'm, I'm looking for the one. Right, that one book that's just going to change my life. And then, of course, after about 20, 30 minutes of going through like dozens of books, one of them just jumps out at me. It's like, oh, right. And I say, oh, my God, that's it. That's the one. And I grab it and I put it under my arm like it's a baby, you know, like I'm holding my baby. And I go to the checkout and I take out my credit card. I pay for the book and I find myself a nice, quiet little space. And I open up the book and it you know, that, that first crackle, that sound of the book crackling open and the smell of the fresh, it's like, oh, such an experience. It's like a drug, right? It is. It is a drug. And then, of course, what do I do? And you self-help addicts, you know what I'm talking about when I say this. I take out my yellow marker pen. <laughs> and of course, what do I start doing? I start marking every single line, which is crazy because if you look at all of my books, like I've got hundreds of books and all of them are yellow. The whole point of marking a book <laughs> is you only mark... The one, you know, a few sentences or a few paragraphs. Yeah. My books are filled with yellow because every single line is a game changer. It's like, oh my God, this is going to change my life. Wow, this is it. This is what I needed. Oh my goodness, right? And you keep flipping through and flipping through and no one can disturb you. You're like just in this space. And then you get to the end of the book. And this is what happens every time I get to the end of the book. I get this pit in my stomach, this feeling of, oh no, what now? And the reason why that is, is because as self-help addicts, when we're reading or listening or watching and we're consuming information and we're getting inspired, we're getting motivated, we justify that we don't need to take action because I'm gathering information. I don't need to do anything now because I'm getting inspired. And so as long as I'm getting inspired, I'm getting motivated, I'm gathering information, I'm okay. I don't need to go out. I don't need to put myself out there. And so it's a comfort blanket that we hold on to so tightly because as long as we hold on to it, we don't need to go out and risk anything. So, of course, we get to the end of the book and we get to the end of the rope. And now what? So we quickly grab some more rope and that could be a webinar or, oh, let me go check out the website. Let me see what they do. And, oh, there's a free webinar. Let me go to the webinar. It's free. Wow. And, of course, you join the webinar and you say to yourself, you see, if I join the webinar then they're going to tell me something that's going to change my life and that's going to get me to take action. So, of course, you listen to the webinar and, of course, at the end of the webinar, they say, well, if you really want to change your life, if you really want to take the next step, then join me at my live event. It's only $3,999 plus airfare and, you know, hotels or whatever. And, of course, you take out your credit card because you're thinking, well, you know, this is an investment in my life, even though I'm broke, but I've got to invest in myself because if I keep investing in myself, then I'm going to be able to do it. And you go to this live event and everybody's jumping up and down and going, yeah, yeah, it's amazing. And then, of course, you fly back 
and you're back to the same place again. You're back in that bookstore finding another book, a different author, a different God, a different idol. And instead of searching for that secret, instead of searching for that idol that I can worship, I discovered that actually the real hero is me. I'll tell you that just listening to your whole story, it sounds to me like, not to psychoanalyze, <laughs> but very much that your journey has been one of, you know, you had a difficult childhood a difficult beginning and constantly searching for that panacea for that solution outside of yourself for redemption for salvation for meaning for purpose and then ultimately realizing coming to the conclusion that no it's really within me those resources that power has been invested within me already there and if i just listen to my own inner voice my own gut my own instincts my own intuition and then take action based on that, that's where I'll find that redemption, that salvation. There it is. Daniel, in closing, tell me just a little bit about what is the Geffen Media Group, which sounds like it's your, been your second major venture, and where are you going from there? What's, what's the third, the fourth, what's the next chapter in the, in the Geffen's journey? Uh, great question. And Geffen Media Group is essentially my way of being able to help others achieve what I've achieved through podcasting. So I help people to launch their own podcast show. And I don't need to you know, sell you the idea. You've done it. And you know, for those listening, I can't even begin to describe what the podcast has done for me. It's opened so many doors. It's incredible, right? Ari, you, you're nodding away, right? Because you, you understand that. Um, and the ability to Again, to have, I have a voice. Everybody has a voice. Everybody has something that they want to express. They want to share their story, that you want to share your message. You want to inspire others, impact others. And for me, the, the podcast is a platform that I'm able to stand or sit in front of a microphone. And I can do that. And I can speak to thousands of people. I don't need to fly anywhere. I don't need to go on stage. It's, it's incredible. The second part of what we do at Geffen Media Group is we also help people get on podcast shows. So, you know, more platforms to speak on, more ways to, if I was to summarize what Geffen Media Group does is we give your voice a platform. That's what we do. Give your voice a voice. Give your voice a voice. Yeah, give your voice a platform to stand on. Exactly. Um, what's next? You asked me what next. I try to keep it day by day. I try to try kind of just really, it's very interesting you say this. I used to think that I needed a big goal. I needed some big mission, some end, big picture, what's my purpose in life. And I recently discovered that I would be foolish or arrogant to think that I know what that is. So many times I say to myself, you know, in five years time, I'm going to do this. And in 10 years time, I'm going to, so excuse me, Daniel Geffen, can you stop for one second? Five years ago, would you have ever imagined that you would be a host of an award-winning podcast show? No way. I didn't even know what a podcast was. You know, two years ago, would you ever have imagined or dreamed that you'd be a, a number one international best-selling author? Never, not in my wildest dreams. 11 years ago, would you ever imagine that you'd be married to this girl from California and have four beautiful children and live in Israel? I think you're nuts. So if I couldn't figure out anything for the last two years, three years, 10 years, 15 years, then why do I think that I can ever imagine what's going to be in two years from now or five years from now or 10 years from now? You know, it sounds like 
if the theme of your story has been one of listening to your gut, that's also married with a sense of humility and a sense of wonder and, and openness to receiving the input that will ultimately inform that gut, inform that intuition, because we can't create that on our own. We need to listen for the messages that will help us discover what we're supposed to be doing. I think all of that wrapped together seems to have catapulted you to where you are today and to where I'm sure you're going, which you don't know, but none of us know and we'll be excited to see and, and hear about in the future. Daniel Geffen, tell people where they can find you. Well, A, buy a copy of the book because that really goes more deeper into my whole story. I go deeper into my personal story and I also go through my journey of how I broke the, the self-help addiction cycle. So the book is on Amazon. You can go on Amazon and just type in the self-help addict and you can buy a copy there. And you've got my contact details as well in the book. So yeah, everything's in the book. Daniel Geffen, serial entrepreneur, podcaster, author. Thank you very, very much for joining us today. Oh, my pleasure. All right. Thank you so much. And thank you to everyone who actually listened to me rambling on for so long. And uh, I'd love to hear from you. Wonderful. Daniel Geffen, thank you very, very much. Pleasure. Thank you so much again. This has been Ari Koretsky on Jews You Should Know. Please visit us at JewsYouShouldKnow.com and subscribe at iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you consume podcasts. Find us on social media at JewsYouShouldKnow. If you'd like to become a supporter of this podcast, we would greatly appreciate that. And you can do so by visiting Patreon.com. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com slash JewsYouShouldKnow. Finally, If you have enjoyed this podcast, please leave us a review so that we can continue to grow and introduce many more people to Jews you should know.